1: Welcome to The Francisca Show, a Jewish coffeehouse podcast, the show in which people share their stories. This is the Survivor Special, where survivors of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse come forward to share their experiences, thereby raising awareness and preventing the likelihood of it happening again. No further research has been done into these stories, and these episodes are intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On some of these episodes, names have been changed to provide some privacy to our dear guests sharing their very vulnerable and personal experiences. I'm Francisca, and you are listening to the No More Silence on The Francisca Show. Welcome to the show, Ellie Nash. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is the No More Silence segment, and uh, Ellie has a very unique story. Everyone has a unique story, but Ellie's story Um, has a continuation and a mission that came out of it. And you did a TED talk on it. I'll give you the mic. We'll start like we do with every episode. And we'll let you begin where you feel your story begins.
0: Where my story begins. (laughs) There are a lot of different uh, starting points. But tell me Tell me which part of it is where you want to focus on, because the TED Talk is slightly different than some of the abuse and trauma that's more on the mission side. So I can start in a few different places. So tell me which part intrigued you and you think your listeners may be interested in, and I'll go from there.
1: Sure. So on the No More Silence segment, it's all about bringing awareness to issues that aren't talked about and that are shoved under the rug. Um, and we primarily focus on sexual abuse, but it's any kind of abuse. And after seeing and watching your TED Talk, you mentioned how um, a porn addiction was a symptom. It wasn't the actual problem. And this, and this platform, this episode, this series is all about talking about the symptom, not the symptom, the actual source. Right. So uh, feel f- I would like to focus on the abuse itself. But it's really how whatever it is for you and what you feel would be most beneficial to share, because I'm sure if anyone wants to go watch it, they can go watch the TED Talk. But I would like to focus on something else here, really dive deep into your story and how it affected you.
0: Right. So I'll go a little bit to the abuse and then what I think um, makes my story somewhat unique. Right. There are obviously a lot of people who are abused. We know the numbers. One in three, I think, on the female side, one in five on the male side, and obviously... Those numbers go up or down depending on how you define abuse. But um, so there are a lot of people who have been abused. What makes my story unique is some of the experiences in adulthood around uh, healing from it. But I'll take you a little bit into my story. So I grew up in uh, Crown Heights, a small enclave in Brooklyn, orthodox community in Brooklyn. And amongst other, it was a large family. I was one of nine, and so were all the others on the uh in the Jewish community, a lot of large families, which meant a lot of children without a tremendous amount of parental oversight, a fair amount of poverty, a fair amount of, um, but the kind of communal poverty, right? You don't even notice that you don't have much, it's just everyone around you is, is kind of in the same situation on top of that, right? Which also means less oversight, which also means less attention. And on top of that, which I think is becoming more relevant and more understood today, but to me, it was a very integral part of my childhood was the the racial tension that existed um, when I was a child in that specific area. So it's kind of something that's always been under the surface. I imagine as long as the Orthodox community and the black community were very close to each other, but there were periods where it spiked. And certainly one of those periods where it spiked was in the 1991 riots. During that, during that time, I was six years old. So that was, uh, there was a that played a lot into it in the sense that there were areas which were safe and areas which were unsafe and people who are quote unquote safe and people who were quote unquote unsafe. And there was this, um, vigilance in some areas of my life, but then in others, I'm like, okay, here I am with someone safe. And I think that played into me being, um, it's one of the things that played into an older boy who was one of the safe ones being able to access me and abuse me and et cetera. So um, what happened was when I was eight years old, there was an older boy, 13, 14 years old, which took particular interest in me. And it started, you know, classical grooming, um, taking taking me with him to the store, teaching me sports, teaching me computer games, showing me his baseball cards, all sorts of things that he can, um, that I was interested in that he can um, share with me. And I felt kind of special. Right. Sometimes we'd take me to the synagogue. I was like, okay, there were there weren't there weren't kids my age then and whatever it was, right? There were different things he was able to 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 bring me to, and I felt a certain s- level of specialness with him. And I also felt the attention and appreciated that. Over time, he started pushing boundaries and eventually started using me for his sexual gratification, and. I guess looking back at my story is why didn't I say something, right? Not then, not only the first time, but why did I keep going back and not saying anything, not say anything, right? And when I look back, I realize that I made that deal continuously, that this relationship was worth it for me, for the stuff I was getting from it, that I continued going back. I remember being, um, when I eventually told my parents about it, about the abuse, which was only when I was um, an adult, my mid to late 20s, when I told them about it, my mom reacted by calling him a monster and these other things. And I said, well, he was a monster the first time, right? Because <laughs> right? like he called me by surprise. But after that, I went back. So not, I wasn't saying that in order to take blame on me, I was actually saying that in order to put some responsibility on, on my parents and say that at the end of the day, there was an eight-year-old child who made that decision to continuously go back. So one of the things that I've learned in looking at my story in this way is that abuse doesn't happen in a vacuum. It wasn't this kid, everything was okay with my life, and then I got abused, and then it derailed an otherwise perfect life. It was, like when you spoke about the source, the reason why I'm focusing on this because you spoke about the source. When I speak about the source, I also look at, today I look at the abuse as a symptom also, and not as a source so it exacerbated something that was already there but there certainly was already a feeling some of these feelings are very hard to put words to the best word i can put to it is a feeling of being unwanted i don't know you know where that came from if it was slightly me being slightly more sensitive than others around me but i had this sense that i was unwanted and that i needed to do things that made me wanted and this guy certainly wanted me and there was a trade off for that that i that i entered into so hopefully that gives a little bit of a framework. And then I'd love to ask you questions so we can help steer the conversation because I can go in a lot of different places.
1: For sure. Um, So thank you for sharing that. And um, it's very specific how you go into the whole source being feeling unwanted. And uh, a word I have used in the past, or I've heard other people used in the past is the Hefker, you know, where you're where children, especially with how you describe, you know, big families and little parental oversight, there's that hefker, I don't know how to even say it in English, um, disownership, like where it's kids are just, you know, hanging out outside <laughs> every afternoon. So if somebody's, you know, being left out or that's a perfect child to potentially prey on.
0: Right. What's, what's interesting is that if you looked at me as a child, like that wasn't the way my home was run. It wasn't the sense that my, my mom wasn't like that at all. When it came to physical stuff, she was very in tune, right? Are we clean? Do we have what we need? Is there food? Is like all of those things are that sorted. I think that when it came to some emotional things, there just was and it was a mindset then. I'm not putting it specifically on her now. I think one of the things we're doing now in these kind of conversations as well is inviting everyone to pay a little bit more attention to these emotional, um, emotional states. And I think in terms of that, there was that word you're using of Hefker. Hefker is, um, I don't know, unregulated, dysregulated, uh, I don't know, it's just loose, right? No rules. So in terms of that, I think there was less concern over, you know, did my emotional state change, change slightly? I remember one of my first mentors that I, um, started working with in adulthood, he said to me that a big part of my healing will come from being able to feel again. And so much of addiction and porn and everything else is numbing and numbing these painful emotions. So he said what he did is he would walk around uh, he would walk around with a list of emotions. And when he was feeling something, he would try to place the emotion. And he said prior to doing this, he only knew of two emotions, happy and sad. So, and he realized that there are all sorts of other things, right? There are cool ones, like I'm feeling intimidated or exasperated or joyful. I mean, there's slightly different, uh, or bemused. I mean, there's so many words, right? so many things that's a slightly different feeling than that. And I told him, I said that, I think that where I sit now, there's two emotions that I know of hungry and tired. And I, I was, I was joking, but what you see a lot of, and I think can speak to, um, that point of Hefker is when a child is feeling a certain way, they'll often unhappy, you'll hear, oh, they must be hungry, they must be tired. And that's sometimes the case, but it's certainly not not always the case.
1: Right, absolutely. And um I remember when I was reading about eating disorders and how um, who it affects, I remember the classic person it affects is somebody who comes from an overachieving background. Like it's not the person who's falling behind. It's the person who whose parents are very on top of them, maybe. You know, right. Very often will place like any sort of um, abnormality in behavior or circumstances on a lack of parent support. And sometimes it could be the opposite. It could be, come from pressures. It could come from expectations. It could come... From all kinds of places, so I'm not trying to place blame on any one type of um, circumstance.
0: Yeah, I, sometimes people can hear what I'm saying as placing blame, or I've had some of my siblings challenge me in the way I may speak about things, saying talking negatively about um, my parents or the like. But I'm never, I'm never placing blame. I'm never coming from that perspective. It's more of a perspective of just clearly naming what it was. Right, I can name a lot of wonderful things that. My mom gave but there were certain things that weren't there and that's not blaming her parents are not meant to give us everything it's just simply not possible i don't expect to give everything to my kids i'm going to do my my best but one thing on that note as a mom i'm sure you've noticed that children have different cries right And the cry when they're offended and the cry i don't notice as i don't i can't pick up on it as a dad but i know that my wife always knows i just hear a cry but she's like oh she's offended right my daughter's offended or, oh, that's a tired cry. That's a hungry cry. Like, there are, different, there are different ones. Is that true? Do you have
1: that? Yes, definitely. My kids are still young, but there's, their facial expri- expressions, there are definitely different sounds that they make when, how they feel. And you really have to tune in and listen because most of the time we don't have patience right. to listen to. Because to find out that something's going on with them, they're usually already acting out and you have to you know tell them to stop breaking something or get out of something right. and you're not thinking like what's going on so yeah
0: right i know there's definitely one of physical pain that cries very different than right There's yeah that one i know that physical pain and the other ones right, are two separate ones for me but i know i see how my wife is able to hear them differently and i think that's one area where it was relatively loose right so i came out the feeling of hungry and tired the only two feelings that uh, you know, because parents also mirror that, right? When you're feeling a certain way and the response, oh, he must be hungry. It's like, oh, that's what it is. I must be hungry. I'm not insulted. <laughs> I just need a chocolate bar.
1: Yeah. So back to your story, um, so you had one abuser, right? One abuser
0: right? over a three-year period, yeah.
1: Over a three-year period. So what happened at the age of 11 you know, when the abuse stopped? Like, how did you realize when did that breakthrough happen? What did you do next? Uh,
0: So it it didn't happen as 11 year old. The reason it stopped is because as he got older and probably about the age when he was about the age of 15 or 16 it stopped, he moved out of his parents' house, went to school and or was there much less often, right? There wasn't a clean. I don't remember the exact date it started, the exact date it ended. I, I remember it more based on the grade I was in, Right, the teacher I had at the time and what was going on in his in his home. So exactly how many times it happened and exactly when it stopped, I don't know, but he was less home. And when he was less home, he he's it, it stopped happening. I never thought about it. Um I did everything I could to to push it down. I it would bubble up at different points of time. I remember when I was in summer camp once, it was a hypnosis show, and I was like, No, no, I don't want to get hypno. I saw the guys. Uh, you know, going up on the stage to get hypnotized. I was like, no, I'll never do that because maybe that will come out that I was abused. So there were a few times where it popped up, but in general, I was able to um, to push it down. And for me, I mean, porn started shortly thereafter. It, start, it didn't start as porn. It started as catalogs and different magazines that would show up to, you know, clothing catalogs, Night Sisters or whatever it was, right? would Take those and hide them in my house. And I had to, these magazines strategically located and everywhere in my house. Like I mentioned, I was one of nine. So they have a lot of places in order to find a quiet place. And once the internet came out, you know, computers and the internet, and I think probably around the age of 13 or 14, we had a chat in my house and then it just exploded. One of the interesting things you mentioned about food addiction, right? How it often is someone who's overachieving. So, the sex addictions also, they don't, um, they don't spill over the way, like a, 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 someone who's a drunk or a drug addict, which it'll manifest itself much more in someone's like ex- externally will manifest itself much more, but right? you'll start seeing it in someone's eyes and someone's nose. Right. Things happen over time. They're drunk. Right. They've made a decision. They've drunk dialed someone. Right, those things start manifesting itself in that way. We're meeting a lot of people who have had porn addiction, who have porn addictions, or other sex addictions, right? Whatever those are, they often go inward. Right. That's not to say that someone can't be an alcoholic and a sex addict. I'm saying the tradition, like the, the, right, the classic sex addict will often have a lot of things on the outside, look pretty neat. <laughs> things will be in order, and then there's a secret part of Uh, of a life that's particularly toxic. So I would say it's similar. I think there are a lot of similarities between eating disorders and um, sexual addictions.
1: Uh, It makes a lot of sense. And I know in the TED Talk, and I'd like to talk more with you about, you know, what you decided to do with your life and what you're actually, I mean, is this what you do with your career, or is, or is this separate? So, so
0: I'll take you forward a little bit. So I was in this place where I was bearing it. Um, I had this idea that, like I mentioned, I didn't grow up with with much, but I had this idea that if I made money, then a lot of my problems would be solved. So I would I would ask I would say that probably the most challenging part of my childhood was the fact that my parents often weren't on the same page,
1: and with each other with each with other you?
0: they weren't on the same page. And because of that, like often one would be a yes, the other would be no, there was just, there was slight disagreements between them. They weren't, they didn't see the world in the same way at all. And I think because of that, that created a certain tension, right? A certain sense of it's not safe, right? The two people who you look up to are not, haven't sorted their stuff out. And in my mind, it was, if I can make a lot of their, the manifestation of that disagreement was in financial issues, what to spend on, when to spend. Is there enough money for this? Is there not enough money? Why did you do that? Can we do this? So to me, it was so many times I was sitting as a child and saying, like, if only I can go into my pocket and pull out a few hundred bucks, I'd settle this disagreement and there'd be peace again in the house. So that became a driving force of mine. And at 18, 19 years old, I started a business, and relatively quickly I had some, um, some level of success there. I sunk my teeth very heavily into there. I joke that I have the best and the worst of addictions in the sense I have the ones that are most respected and the most (laughs) looked down upon, right? Work addiction is the most respected and sex addiction being the most looked down upon. And I threw myself into, I threw myself into, um, work and into achievement and into success and building a business, et cetera. By the age of twenty twenty three or so, I had achieved a good level of financial success, certainly by the. Um, measures of a 22 or 23-year-old, but that's also when things started falling apart for me a little bit because the lie I was holding on to, which I didn't think was a lie, was that if I make a certain amount of money, everything will solve itself, and I realized it didn't. I felt better for a short period of time, and I was in the same place. I had all of the same discomforts with myself that I did previously. What prompted me to actually go into therapy and start working on the abuse? was uh, people uh, making requests of me and having an inability to say no to them. So whether it was borrowing money or taking time off from work or purchasing product and paying me later and never paying me. So these things started happening and I noticed a disconnect between my mind and my mouth. And what I mean by that is that I, I would often end up in situations where I was taken advantage of and I'd look back at it I'd replay the tape and I'd say I wanted to say no, but I said yes. So I'm not an idiot. There's just some a breakdown here and eventually in talking to a friend about it, he recommended a therapist. What my friend didn't tell me at the time was that he was sexually abused and he knew I was also, but he didn't, he didn't feel comfortable saying it. he, he I don't know if he knew, but he got the sense that I was from, from what I was talking about. And in going into a therapist, he's, you know, why are you here? And I told him that there's a disconnect between my brain and my mouth and I got to figure out what it is. So I gave him a few examples and within a few minutes, 15 minutes or so of meeting him, he said, were you sexually abused as a child? And he was the first person I told, right? So I like to say, well, I did keep my story secret. I didn't tell the first person who asked. So sometimes as parents, <laughs> it's not such a bad idea. I think if someone would have asked me a years old, I would have said yes, right? So going back to that being in tune and the different cries and different emotions, those things, I would like to think that, there's no question to me that the shift That there had had to have been a major shift in me for eight, nine, and 10 when this was going on. Um, And for the people around me not to notice it um, wasn't okay. And I think that hopefully some of these conversations can attune people more to those things. It's not, certainly my, my parents didn't grow up religious and we're now in a religious environment. I think sexual abuse was the last thing on their minds, right? The fact that this kind of stuff can happen in an orthodox community was the farthest thing from their mind, and when I told them, they were shocked, they they were shocked amongst, um, and that was one of the reasons why. Like, wow, this happens here as well, now we know that it happens here as well, and in some ways, because we don't think so, it happens maybe a little bit more frequently. So that, um, once I put two and two together, that the stuff that are going on in my life that i don't displeased with, is connected to the abuse and my proof that it's connected to the abuse is a therapist picked it up picked up on it right away i knew that i had to work on it so i threw myself into that process and here's where i think my story took an interesting turn which is why i eventually made the decision to to speak and share about it is my therapist recommended that i confront my abuser and he gave me a, you know a couple ground rules He's, you know if you're in the ring you're winning you don't have to win but just keep fighting don't be passive keep fighting and I, I don't know if that was specific direction to me or that's something he would say to all abuse survivors i'm not 100 percent sure but he did give it to me and i followed it and it took me four years and a lot of ups and downs i'm not going to go into it here i have a um a talk on youtube where i go into the whole four-year journey of um eventually confronting my abuser but when i did have but I did eventually sit down with him, me, him, and a therapist, it was by far the most healing moment of my life. I had a three-hour meeting with him, and it completely shifted the power dynamics and the story I had around what had happened. Everything changed for me. And once I saw that, I feel like I've, I've really let go of the abuse. I don't like, for, for example, one of the things that have changed for me is I no longer look at the abuse as the problem, as the cause. I look at it as a symptom of, of the problem. So this guy's no longer the monster. This guy's almost the person who, I don't wanna say he helped me, but he he'll, he'll, in some way he helped make me aware of an issue that was there, right? Where had I skirted through childhood without that, this is no credit to him of course, but had I skirted through childhood without that, something else would have had to come up to eventually expose the fact that there's an under that there's a, there's an issue here. There's a child who feels unwanted and you know his 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 basic needs aren't being met, et cetera, et cetera. And for me, that was what exposed it. So I look at it more in terms of an um, important part of the story that helped me get to where I I am today versus the thing that derailed me, if that makes
1: sense. Yeah, absolutely. And just looking back and actually being able to pinpoint the source of, of, of what, what caused everything, um, what kind of signs, like when you say unwanted, like, what does that mean?
0: Um, what does it mean to be unwanted? I think that, um, you know, all kids have a desire to be, um, understood, appreciated, valued, seen. You know i have a two-year-old boy a one-year-old uh, and a one-year-old girl and this morning my daughter was doing this she's just learned to walk she was doing this funny walk where she put her hands behind her back and was kind of walking forward so my sister-in-law was there and she said oh look how she's walking right and then right away my son saw she's getting attention for that he did the same thing right he also started walking so what is that right what's going on is children want that attention, that love, that I'm special, I'm noticed. In one word, the word I use that's wanted, right? We they we we want you here, right? I've I've heard it said one parenting coach says, kids spell love T I M E. Right? That's they I'm wanted, right? You want me to <laughs> you want you want me to be here. I mean that's that's a, it's a deep feeling that a child wants and not having that feeling. For whatever reason, right? It could be the financial pressure. It could be the uh, stress in relationships. Who knows what's going on? Certainly, my parents loved me, but them loving me, that's why I gave that the T I M E, them loving me is not the same as giving me the sense that I feel deeply wanted.
1: And what's T I M E? Time. Sorry. Um, Right. Okay. Right. So I don't know why you had to spell that out. Oh, because
0: they spell love, not L O V E. They spell love T I M E. They spell love and time, right? Meaning in the sense that children feel love when, when time is spent with them, right? So that's why it's, it's, it's not my line. Oh, children don't spell love L O V E. They spell it. It's not enough to tell a child, I love you. Right. It's enough to tell it, it the child feels it when they, when someone spends time with them. That's the idea. So in my case, um, that was a feeling that I had. And it's very possible And this, uh, for anyone who has multiple children, children have different needs. And it could be that what my parents provided was perfectly suitable for my other siblings, but it wasn't for me. I wasn't getting um, my needs met. And that was, it was more of those things. i am not focused so much on putting the words to it as much as there's no doubt that the plant that was growing, me, the plant, was not watered the way it needed to be watered and the abuse did not derail an otherwise perfect childhood. That's what what I'm saying.
1: Okay. No, it makes total sense. Thanks for going into that a little bit. So transitioning from there, you go to therapy, you start breaking it down, linking back the mind and the mouth, as you mentioned Mm -hmm. before. And what happens from there?
0: What happens from there? Uh, There were a few things going on at the same time. So one, was this obsession with work? I was somewhat of a hermit, I, I in the sense that my relationships were all work related. That's what I was focused on, and there were a few tracks that I was kind of working on. A was right linking that mind and the mouth, which is obviously much more than that. Right, it's feeling a sense that you can stand up for yourself, that you're valued, that your needs matter, that, that you can assert your your needs, that you don't need to be in a relationship with someone, and be trampled on in order to, that those in order to, you know, to be in that relationship, and at the same time, I knew I wanted a family, and how am I eventually going to, to build a family, and um, it wasn't it wasn't where I was. I wasn't dating much. I was, um, I talk about porn addiction, but on, on the TED talk, but it went much further than that. I was getting my, you know, I was all of, all of the transactional sexual relationships that one can imagine I was engaged in. That's just where I was most comfortable and I wasn't as comfortable in relationships. And that was a healing process to get to the point that I can be in relationship with someone. It was through that work that I realized that I had a porn slash sex addiction that needed to be worked on. And while all these were coming together, I had the opportunity to, um, meet the, we meet with my abuser I mentioned that confrontation, which shifted something almost spiritually inside me. And it gave me a, it it, it turned my story into a completely different story, right? There's what happens. And then there's a meaning we give it. And until that moment, I was attributing so much power to the person who abused me. Like I said, I'll I'll, I'll repeat it again, because I think it's important. And I hear from a lot of people who are abused is this, this story, right? The story in my head was, here was a perfect childhood. Right. That was derailed by my abuser. And I would say all the time, this guy robbed me of my childhood. In fact, my childhood was shit <laughs> before him. That's the truth. Right. And that's why he was able to do what he did. That's he. if could he have abused me one time? Sure. That that can always happen. Even perfect parents totally attuned to their children. But. You can't make the argument with me that an eight-year-old boy would feel better, a healthy eight-year-old boy who's getting their needs met, whose parents are attuned to them, would feel better going back than telling their parents. You can't tell me that a child who feels loved by their parents would make a deal to get love and attention from someone else. There's no way. So being able to look at my story more holistically in that way, I also said I, I have to speak about this. I've heard very few people I, I feel lucky in the sense that I was able to meet with my abuser. I was able to demonster him, <laughs> he was, I, was, I was able to humanize him again. Right? We're so quick to say that anyone who sexually abused someone, they're monsters, they're monsters. Well, if that's the case, we got a hell of a lot of monsters running around in human form. So we're much better off, I think, looking at this as um, a problem that's a very human problem. It's a very, and, and humans do this. And they can be otherwise decent people in other areas, and this is an area where they it's something goes goes awry, and they have to be held accountable for it. This is not to say they should get a pass, but we, we can hold a human accountable instead of a monster accountable. <laughs> and that's and that's where that's where I really felt the need that I have to start talking about this because the healing for me didn't happen by putting him down by cl- by claiming my victim status. It came from looking at the story really holistically and saying, here was a child who was not getting their needs met. This was exposed. The problem was exposed by my abuser. And fortunately, I had the very rare experience of being able to sit down with them. Very few people get, the experience, get to experience that, be able to co- confront their abuser and for the abuser to actually sit in a conversation. He broke down crime in the conversation, just to give you an idea.
1: Would you say that because he was a couple of years older than you that that helped? Meaning if that w- if he was an adult or a teacher or a rabbi, um, would it be harder for you to de- dehumanize him? Well, de right? right, so p-
0: possibly, right, po- possibly. But let's let's tease that out a little bit. So for an eight year old child, right, a nine year old is a big kid. Right. I was eight. He was 13. When I was nine, he was 14. As a child, I mean, that's, there's a massive difference to an eight-year-old than them and a 13-year-old. I I remember when I was in school, a a child who was one year older was, right, larger and stronger and faster and older and et cetera. So um, that's one. The second is that the pain is the same, right? If there's a 13-year-old kid who sticks a knife in you or a 30-year-old guy who sticks a knife in you, the pain is the same. So w-
1: when we're talking about them bringing meaning to it, that's where I'm at. Right, in terms like, of that, as an adult it looking have back,
0: more difficult? Yes, I would imagine if, um, I-, I would imagine, for example, if this guy abused tons of other people, was continuing to abuse people, yes, it would, all of that would have made it much more difficult to demonstrate him. I'm not um, suggesting in any way that this is, right, that's what I'm saying actually is I had a very unique experience. I had a very unique experience, but I think that this experience can lend itself to others to suggest this is possible. Did I have an easier set of circumstances to make this happen? I certainly did, right? I, um, I certainly did, but let me give you a, an example. I was talking to someone whose abuser died and he said to me, I'll never be able to experience what you did because I'll never be able to confront my abuser um, like, cause he's dead. I said, there still has to be some way I have to hold on to the belief that there is some way that someone can unlock themselves from from that story. And one reason why is because it's more true. My story is more true in that I had a dysfunctional childhood and this person took advantage of that dysfunctional childhood versus I had this perfect childhood that was derailed by the monster. And that's what a lot of people's story is a lot, it was my story and I hear it all the time. And I think that could be unlocked. If we're really looking to, if we're really willing to go into the story and say honest to God, that despite the fact that this guy abused me, I felt more love from him than I did from my own father. That's not a knock on my father. I'm just saying I'm reporting, right? I'm a journalist coming into the scene. I'm looking around, I'm seeing an eight year old boy who's repeatedly over two or three year period going to this guy's house. That boy feels more love from this abuser than his father, and that's the sad part of the story. That's the pain of the story. The abuse is the symptom to that problem, and I think that most of us who are sexually abused will be able, w- will be able to tease that out a little bit more once they demonster and defang the, their abuser and to so what really happened there, and who's really the what, what really happened there what's the most true story and in that way un- unleash the healing, which is what the goal is.
1: And this is so powerful. This is exactly what we want to be talking on this podcast because people love to just brush it away and blame it on that. And there's so much more to it. And when you said, when you connected with the actual source of the whole, you not having that relationship with your father that you should have had, or you felt you should have had, um, Take back the felt you should have had. That you should have had. Um, that's the source. That's the source. And when you are able to tap into that and be aware and heal through that, then it becomes so light you're able to talk about it on a day like today, and you're probably going to go about your day, and it's not going to even consume the rest of your day. Correct. Am I
0: correct? Right? And um, I want to be clear that I'm not blaming my father either. Right. I'm taking. He, he did a lot of wonderful things. He's taught me a lot of wonderful stuff. A lot of the reason why I stand up for injustice is because he modeled that for me. And I saw him do that. For, for those who know him, I saw what he did in the community. And he he put he, – he has a lot of integrity and he did things a certain way. And he put his money where his mouth is, quote, unquote, in the sense that he put his time into uh, causes he cared about. At the same point in time, right, while he did all that and modeled something very powerful for me, he also was not able to give to, – to meet – these needs of mine on an emotional level and I replaced it with someone who took advantage of me. And that's the, that's the real story. (laughs) That's the real story.
1: It's, it's great. It's very, um, you, you make it sound like it's almost a prerequisite for every parent to have some emotional intelligence. Um, I don't know, therapy or coaching or some sort of like awareness that, because many people, especially, and I'm not talking about your generation, but one up, you know, anyone raised by Holocaust survivors or anyone raised by European parents or anywhere where there's culture where you don't express love, where you don't express being proud of your kids, where that's the norm of the culture. Like we're really trying to shift that with the new, new age culture and new age parenting where it's so much more being in tune and aware
0: yeah, I think the technical term is is that word is attunement, right? Attunement to a child. So it's not so much as love as it is attuned to their particular needs. And one needs one thing, and one needs one needs something very, very different. And it just and,
1: and that's going to be the <laughs> challenge of a lifetime of every every parent. Um, it's yeah. Um, can you talk and share a little bit about your work in well? Um, your realizations and philosophies when it comes to porn addiction and talking about it and the shame you you you, you brought out i it was very beautifully presented and I'd like to just give a short synopsis yeah, so, for anyone listening
0: so a life philosophy of mine that stemmed from really the the healing of the abuse because I feel like I did heal from the abuse when I say I healed from the abuse I don't mean that all the effects from it are gone right but I, I mean that emotionally I've I've put it to rest. It's not a sore subject. It's not a, a trauma that's going to unwind and come out of nowhere. There's It's it's resolved. I'm good with it. I like to say that if I was the author of my own story, I would add that chapter in the book. I would put all of that in there. I'm, 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 I've come to peace with all of it at this point in time. And one of the things that I learned from that is that those sources of shame, right? I mentioned, you know, sitting in camp, right? People on stage getting hypnotized. That's not a small anecdote. What, what that's representing is that there's a part of me that I believe that if my friends knew about me, they wouldn't want to be friends with me. And that's why I'm not going to get on the stage. And that sits there. Always what happened on the stage was a reminder of that, but that sits there beneath the surface. Always. There's that, there's, there's that belief. So I'm talking about the, the most shameful part of myself, right? That I didn't want anyone to know about. Suddenly I'm speaking on a stage and I started talking very openly about the fact that I was sexually abused and people coming over to me and bringing up different. I remember one, one, one guy coming over to me after a speech, he said, I came here because I heard there was an awareness event on sexual abuse, but um, I didn't think I was sexually abused because I was sexually abused by a teenager. So I thought, oh, he was just a kid. (laughs) He was just a kid. It wasn't like these other guys who had a teacher being abused. And I told him the same thing. I said, you know, if a 13-year-old kid fires a rocket in Gaza (laughs) or fires from from Gaza to Israel, does the same damage. I mean, no one knows. Oh, it's only a 13-year-old kid. I can't believe the rocket killed you. So and that helped him right, to approach his own healing because the truth of the matter, I wasn't creating the problem. The problem existed, but he was pushing away, not dealing with it, saying he was only a teenager. And I had a lot of stories one after the next saying, hey, I went from shame to, not, not from shame to like in recovery, they say from shame to grace. It was, I took the shame. I took the shame, the specific area that gave me the most shame and made it useful. So the way that manifested with porn addiction is eventually I got into recovery from addiction, but I didn't want anyone to know where, <laughs> where. And I would go to meetings and I would do my thing, but I didn't want anyone to know that this was my problem. I'd sometimes even talk about 12 steps, but I never mentioned. I just figured if I'm talking about 12 steps, people are going to assume I'm an alcoholic and that's you know, a recovering alcoholic and fine. I never wanted to, to mention that. And when I realized that was a source of shame for me, and that was a source of... Uh, That was something that I didn't want people to find out. I said, I got to use the same recipe as previously. And the recipe is an instant. It's not, okay, I have this shame. Let me get on the stage and project it. It's slowly building up to the point that I've healed more of it. And I said, okay, I'm ready to do it. What I mean by that is I don't go from not talking about it to, to putting a speech on YouTube that I did in front of 500 people. I go from not talking about it to introducing it to a few people who are close to me, getting certain reactions, seeing how people take it and then going to people that are more unknown and more unknown and more unknown until I finally said I'm ready for doing this on a, on a larger level. And about a year and a half ago, I signed up to do a talk, a a Ted talk, escaping porn addiction. It's been seen nearly 2 million times. I get messages almost every day on Facebook, Instagram, or emails from people who've come across it and hopefully inspired them to say, okay, I can do something about this. Specifically with porn addiction, what I found is, um, Just how difficult it is to say, this is my, this is the problem that I'm having.
1: 100%. This also, it's not connected really, but like uh, women who go through miscarriage or stillbirths versus, but really families, not just women, versus um, the women who have to make, uh, who, who end up going through abortion, where that one little change that changes everything, that one thing happened to somebody versus the other one made a choice, and it, and something they feel so much shame talking about, and they don't talk about it. So I don't know why I brought that in.
0: Well, the truth, I know why I brought it in, because that's actually what my TED Talk is about. Um, there was an article on some Jewish website after I did my TED Talk saying something like, um, Jewish entrepreneur takes on his next, wages his next war. Um, porn addiction or pornography. And he mentioned that I, you know, combated child sex abuse for a while. Now I'm combating pornography. And I put a comment in there saying, I'm not combating pornography. I'm combating shame, right? That's, that's my war. So in terms of that, yeah, my message has nothing to do with pornography as much as it has to do with shame and whether it's if, if someone feels, I don't know what that shame is, right? But if someone feels shame, for example, from a stillbirth or a miscarriage or a difficulty um, getting pregnant, then what that tells me is that they're not the only one. There's probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who have the same shame. So the second they build up the emotional capacity to be able to speak about that, they're going to get tons of people who say, well, wow, I'm sitting there with the same, with the same shame secret. And now there's, right, those two connect on that and then the shame is gone or it's greatly reduced.
1: I was differentiating between the nuances of someone getting bad news about a pregnancy not being viable, but actually having to decide whether to terminate the pregnancy or wait for it to, you know, end on its own. Like those kinds of questions where it's the differential, like it's a medical technicality. Well, it's, you know, um, but some women don't have that shame aspect or at least less shame versus other women who had to make a choice when it comes oh, to you know, that, the termination. So in that, miscarriage sc- versus in that scenario, abortion, even, even calling a
0: doctor and saying, hey, this is like, what should I do? or discussing it with someone, just bringing bringing up that they have to make that choice. They're uncomfortable talking about it. That's the point you're making.
1: I, yeah, I think people would say they have a miscarriage even if they decided to terminate when they could have oh, waited right. for it to end on its own. Um, and I'm not talking about selective abortion and all the political stuff to it. I'm talking about, um, you know, a life already being completely endangered. Um, okay. So do you, have you connected this work and this life's mission, and this message of spreading awareness and removing the shame factor with your business or is it completely separated?
0: It's separated. It's, uh, my my okay. business is, uh, I have a distribution company, which You know, I've been running for the last 15 years and I continue to, but certainly this gives me, um, a lot of my passion and drive and, and purpose.
1: And were you ever nervous? Um, if you talked about this, would that affect your business?
0: Sure. Yeah. There's a, there's a price to pay for everything. And so I don't even know, um, what that price will be, but I, I know for a fact that there was one client that I was going after, that I was, um, looking to get their business. And I heard, or we had a few conversations and they stopped talking to us, but I knew someone else in the company. And I said, "Do you know, what's, what's going on. And, uh, they said, yeah, one of the people looked you up and they saw the stuff on porn. So they got a little bit nervous and I, I, but I've heard other stories also where I was like, oh, wow. Like, um, your bo- you know, one of my employees came to me and said uh, he was in a meeting and said oh your boss is that guy who uh talks about the porn addiction that's amazing like it's so incredible that he does that so i've heard both sides but yeah when you do these kind of things they're not without a cost right i mean even this conversation i spent it i spent an hour here versus an hour somewhere else that's a cost one one right that's a cost anyway you look at it so yeah i don't spend i don't pretend that um, there's not a cost that comes with doing this. Of course, of course there is, but it's also worth it in terms of the purpose and meaning and also healing the, the deep healing that comes from seeing how someone else benefits from benefited from your shame or your pain. is very powerful for me. Um, that manifested itself for a while as speaking publicly lately, it's actually been more one-on-one work. So working with people one-on-one over a period not as a coach but just you know speaking to them once a week and guiding them through the process and seeing them change and that's been very fulfilling it's saying like wow my story and my the details of my story can be used as a way to uh to help someone else that's the most that's the most healing i think and uh if i can risk using the word godly um thing i know
1: that's so beautiful and you have a podcast too is that correct i do Okay, would you yeah, like sure. to share My podcast is
0: called In Search of More. Um, I started it during the uh, pandemic towards the beginning, what was going on. I recognized that there was a, uh, a lot of the lessons that I had learned in recovery from addiction uh, suddenly applied to everyday life for everyone. <laughs> so things we learned like, you know, letting go of things you can't control, which is very important for an addict, but moderately important for an everyday person. And now suddenly became very important for an everyday person. So my podcast, pretty much all of the episodes are actually recorded live and done as webinars where we have an interactive audience. And afterwards I put it up on the podcast and we touch a variety of different topics, often addiction, but I've been exploring my own connection with Judaism in some way. And I've left the organized and the practice of it. Now, as a family, I feel some desire to come back to it and how do I, reapproach and having some of those conversations. So I call it in search of more because it's really inviting the audience through me on that search versus saying I found a destination. Let me share it with you. This is more of, hey, this is what I'm bumping into now. And let me while I'm having a conversation with someone, let me turn on the camera.
1: Yeah, that's so beautiful. I definitely um I relate to that because that's how I started my podcast because I was definitely in search of more. What I was doing was not working for me. And this has been a very beautiful journey for me. And that's regarding to the art segment. This segment, we'll see where this goes, the no more silence. But I really, really enjoyed this conversation with you. I think we, you mentioned so many important and powerful um, just elements that everyone could really benefit and learn from. So I really appreciate your time. We know this is a cost thing <laughs> you could have been doing something else. You had a baby a week and a half ago. So congratulations on Mazel Tov. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah,
0: I'm very grateful for the opportunity and I hope that the uh, message lands with someone who needs to hear this. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for listening until the end. And if you did enjoy this episode, please subscribe to the show, share it with your friends, and leave us a good review. If you would like to share your story on this podcast, please do reach out to me at franciscakgmail.com. At this Francisca Show podcast hosts a No More Silence special on abuse once a month. However, do check in on other weeks for interviews with female Jewish creatives.